This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Andrew Holacek. Andrew is an author, spiritual teacher, and humanitarian. As a longtime student of Buddhism, he frequently presents this tradition from a contemporary perspective, blending the ancient wisdom of the East with modern knowledge from the West. He's the author of The Power and the Pain, Transforming Spiritual Hardship into Joy, and also a book called Preparing to Die, Practical Advice and Spiritual Wisdom from the Tibetan Buddhist Perspective. With Sounds True, Andrew has created a new audio learning course called Dream Yoga, The Tibetan Path of Awakening Through Lucid Dreaming. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Andrew and I spoke about stabilizing lucidity in a dream and what it means to be an Oneironaut. We also talked about stages of dream yoga practice and how to begin the process by having a lucid dream tonight. We also talked about how dream yoga is complemented by a daytime practice called illusory form practice. And finally, what dream yoga can teach us about ourselves, about working with fear, and about how to see through the solidity of all forms. Here's my conversation with Andrew Holacek. Andrew, to begin with, I'd love it if you could help orient our listeners to what is Tibetan dream yoga and how does that relate to lucid dreaming? Yeah, there's um, a lot of similarities and obviously some differences. Um, lucid dreaming is the ability for a person in the middle of a dream, they're fully in the middle of a dream, and through either a particular technique or serendipity, they awaken within the dream and they actually realize that they're dreaming. Um, so the dream continues, they're awake within the dream, and then um, within the context of lucid dreaming proper, um, the invitation is one initially of exploration, um, even indulgence. There can be, a, I remember when I first started my own dream career some 40 years ago, I didn't know anything about dream yoga. And lucid dreaming was just a fantastic way to live out my wildest fantasies. Um, and it's even sold that way. It's marketed that way. Uh, so there's no particular 
kind of spiritual component to lucid dreaming per se. Um, there are psychological aspects. You can refine your lucid dreaming skills so that you can really work with psychological issues within the context of a lucid dream. Um, but the biggest difference between lucid dreaming and dream yoga is that um, in dream yoga, it really it becomes a yoga. It becomes a, a practice. And yoga in the deepest sense of the word, yoga is that which unites or yokes, or in this case, I like to talk about it as that which stretches the mind. So it's a mental yoga. There are yogas obviously associated with the physical body, but there are also mental yogas. And dream yoga is a fantastic mind yoga where when you wake up within the dream, the lucid dream techniques and methodologies themselves actually trigger you into lucidity. And then it's like a platform. From there, the dream yoga practitioner comes in and says, okay, now I am awake within this dream. Instead of just indulging it, which um, according to the Buddhist tradition, as long as intention is involved, karma is created. So um, lucid dreaming isn't tax-free karmically. You can actually create um, negative karma if you're indulging your wildest fantasies, which may or may not be to benefit all sentient beings. They might be to basically indulge some of your own desires. Um, in dream yoga, that is completely curtailed. There's more a sense of discipline involved. There are a regimented set of practices, stages of practice, where a practitioner awakens within the dream, they're lucid, and then they go to work. Then they start working with their mind, you know, allowing it to, first of all, become more and more stable and familiar with this um, really exquisite kind of mental laboratory. And then, you know, progressive series of practices of increased stability, increased refinement, um, to the point where some of the esoteric practices are, are really quite out of this world. Okay, so it's a, it's a pretty big leap, I think, for most people and for me to be able to say, oh, I can just have a lucid dream tonight. I can awaken in the dream. So we're, we're going to talk about that some. But let's just stay with the idea that I can do it. I'm awake in the dream. Right. What am I going to do now? What kind of practices? I mean, you talked about I'm working with the mind. What am I doing? So now we're talking about dream yoga. Yeah. Yeah, so there, there are state, there's several stages that one can go through. Uh, and the traditions actually put them forth this way. Um, you know, this tradition of dream yoga comes from three principal kind of um, streams within Tibetan Buddhism. One is the six yogas of Naropa, one is the uh, Padmasambhava teachings, and then one is the Bun Buddhist um, teaching. So within these, what, what I did when I presented this material is I tried to extract from all three lineages and then conjoin them with my own practice and understanding because I was engaged with dream yoga practice for, for many, many years. So the first thing one can do is obviously a sense of celebration within the dream. You wake up and there is this wonderful euphoria that, oh my goodness, I'm awake within a dream. And then the first thing is to do, the first thing to do, the invitation here is to gain some stability. Um, and you want to like maintain your level of awareness, you know, kind of stabilize your sense of um, involvement and participation in the lucid dream. Um, and then when that develops to a certain extent, then what you can do is you can start to actually manipulate the dreamscape. Because, of course, when you're manipulating the dreamscape, you're actually working with your mindscape. You're literally working with your mind as it's manifesting in this world. So in a very real sense, mind becomes reality. 
in in the dream world, which of course is why these teachings um, fundamentally, the dream yoga tr- uh, tradition came about originally as a preparation for death, because there are tremendous similarities, according to the Tibetans, between the type of mindscape that one that unfolds for one in the after death states, high resonance with the type of mindscape that unfolds in the dream state. And uh, just parenthetically, if one can gain um, control, and some masters say as little as seven stable lucid dreams, and whether that's taken literally or metaphorically is open for debate. But if you can gain stability in the dream state, that stability naturally transposes into the after-death state. And how are you defining stability? Stability is, is really the ability to control the dream without being swept away by it. You know, so in other words, in a normal non-lucid dream, you fundamentally it's defined by lack of control. Yeah. You know, you you are um, you are not the writer, director, and producer of this movie. You are being swept away by it, and this is why nightmares become nightmares. This is why you know we're just simply blown around by the the winds of our own mind. In a lucid dream, and this is what makes it so powerful. In an instant, the tables are completely turned. What previously had such control over you, now you have complete control over it, which is your mind. So stability here is the ability to maintain lucidity for longer and longer periods. When people first start to lucid dream, um, one of the first things is they're so excited that usually within a minute or so, they wake themselves back up. So stability would be, okay, I'm going to see how long I can stay in this dream. And as one approaches in the latter stages of the night, the primetime dream time, um, it's not uncommon for these dream oneironauts, those who explore the inner space of the mind, kind of the uh, the inner analogs to astronauts. Um, oneironauts. Oneironauts. Okay, that's a yeah, cool word. Yeah, from, from oneironology, oneironology, which is the study of the dream. So oneironauts are those who explore the inner space of the mind. And um, once the stability is there, in the latter stages of the night, um, when REM sleep, which is you know predominantly associated with dreaming, you can actually be in a full-blown lucid dream for 45, 50 minutes at a time. Um, and that gives you quite a bit of time to actually practice. I mean, there's a lot you can do, uh, which is why I'm so thrilled about these practices, because I lead a pretty busy life. And instead of spending a third of my life in virtual unconsciousness, I can at least take part of it when I engage in these practices and really use it as a, as a, as a profound and, and really a fascinating way to work with my mind at this inner level. Okay, so here I am, and I'm through this mindscape in the dream, controlling the... I'm the producer, the director, the actor, the whole thing... Am I doing whatever I want in dream yoga, being the producer, the director, the actor, and maintaining stability, or am I meditating or doing a specific practice? Well, it's a, li- it's a little bit of both. You don't want to do as much, I shouldn't say you don't want. You can do whatever you want. Um, but that's really, again, the difference between classic lucid dreaming and dream yoga. In classic lucid dreaming, you really do do whatever you want. And that's really what makes it so much fun. And that's why it sells. Um, it's sexy, it's, it's fascinating, you know, the wildest um, imaginations really can be fulfilled. That's not necessarily going to wake you up. And in a certain sense, it's, it's what we call super samsara, it's super confusion, because you're just basically indulging your mind in an environment where no one can see you. And this is actually very revealing, and it's one reason why, both from a psychological and a spiritual perspective, 
dreams are referred to as the truth tellers. They really are the truth tellers because you're working with levels of the unconscious mind that are usually mediated and suppressed by the conscious mind. So Freud talked about it. All the classic psychologists talked about dreams as truth tellers. This also works on the level of, of dream yoga as well. So here, the truth teller, and this is an invitation for listeners who engage in lucid dreaming, it's like asking yourself, what would you do if you were invisible? Would you work to benefit all sentient beings, or would you work to fulfill your wildest fantasies? There's no judgment here, but what, is, what would be the display of your mind if no one could see you? And for a lot of people, me included, when I first started lucid dreaming, I just had a lot of fun. I just fulfilled all my fantasies. And then when I was introduced to the dream yoga practices, it was like, okay, now there's a way I can actually use this state as a way to help wake me up. As a way, really as a way to work with a very subtle level of my mind in a spiritual capacity. And again, that's a, one of the deep differences between lucid dreaming and dream yoga. But I'm still trying to get a sense of what exactly you're doing in in dream yoga. Well, let, let me give yeah. you some examples. I, I, there are about 10 classic steps going from um, relatively accessible things to really quite wildly esoteric things. So, for instance, step one would be there's some stability in the dream. Okay, I'm going to participate in the dream. I'm going to try to stay in this dream as long as I can. Um, secondly, then you would say, okay, um, and this is quite easy to do, I want to fly. So this is a, you know, it's kind of a bridge between lucid dreaming and dream yoga because it's fun. So you, and I love doing this. You kind of take off and you're just kind of tooling around. That's really great. So, uh, a second step from there, stage from that would be something like, okay, I want to walk through this dream wall, or I want to put my hand through this dream wall. And it's a fascinating um, invitation for a practitioner of dream yoga to actually do because what happens, certainly in my experience and in other dream um, yoga practitioners I've talked to, is that you will come up against literally, not literally, I suppose, um, the habitual patterns being displayed without mediation. In other words, how it is that you take everything to be solid, lasting, and real, independent, even when you're within a dream. So, for instance, here what you would do, the invitation for, like, step two of this would be come up to a dream wall and try to put your hand through it. And very often what happens, and I've been doing this for 40 years, I still have this. I'll come up to the wall. I know it's a dream wall, and my hand will still meet something solid. And again, here's another um, kind of instance of dreams as truth tellers. They they still reveal to me how I believe that things really do exist. Yeah. So then, as I'm pressing up against the wall, sooner or later, the wall turns into jello, and I can put my hand through the wall. Um, so that's actually a, that's actually a form of practice. You know, I'm working with this. The word is reification. You know, which is if there is an original sin in the Buddhist tradition, it's reification, which is this propensity we all have to make things solid and real. Yeah. That, of course, is what constitutes a non-lucid dream. You think the dream is real. A lucid dream is you wake up to the illusory nature of it, but you're still you know, kind of constrained by your habitual tendencies towards reification. So these are revealed in the dream. Again, tr dreams as truth-tellers. So you're working with that. Um, a third step would be you start to um, multiply things. So, for instance, what I will do is I'll, I'll put my dream hand in front of me, which is a wonderful induction technique from Carlos Castaneda in The Art of Dreaming. And I will look at this dream hand, 
and I will say, okay, I want five of these things. And even though I know I'm dreaming and it's just my mind, I still can't instantaneously just generate five of these things. But if I work with it, if I stay with it, and I realize where my mind is, eventually I'll be able to pop up these different hands. Or I'll be looking at a table and I'll say, I want to turn that table into a car. I want to turn that um, glass into you know, a, a rabbit. Yeah. And you might ask, well, well, why would you want to do that? Well, because what you're doing is you're actually working with transforming the contents of your own mind. And as one develops facility with this practice, then what it allows you to do is work more skillfully with transforming experiences in your own life. In other words, unwanted experiences. So you're having, you're in the middle of a of an intense attack of anger. Yeah. And because you've developed more control over your mind in, in the medium of the dream, it might just flash into you that, you know, I do not have to relate to this particular situation in this particular way. So that's the great gift. And this is another differentiating factor between lucid dreaming and dream yoga. Because really, where uh, where dream yoga takes you is transposing the insights you glean in the medium of the dream and bringing them into your waking life. So that eventually, at the very highest levels of, of dream yoga practice, and in fact, it's one thing that actually constitutes waking up altogether, you realize there's fundamentally no inherent difference between so-called waking reality and so-called dreaming reality. And lucid dreaming doesn't have that. um, The word is soteriology. It doesn't have that spiritual trajectory towards salvation. So the idea with dream yoga is you take these insights, and there's many more that we can talk about. You know, like another step would be um, creating intentionally in your dream, intentionally creating fearful situations intentionally creating a fire in the dream or, or whatever, an abyss, a cliff or whatever, and then working with the fear, you know, actually walking into the fire, for instance. And what this allows you to do is develop a, a very profound and intimate relationship with, in many ways, is the primordial emotion of samsara. I mean, it's, if there's one thing, and fear and reification are almost synonymous, if there's one thing that drives us in to rebirth, whether it's moment-to-moment, day-to-day, or life-to-life, it's fear. It's fear of the truth of our own non-existence and fear of the truth of our own power. We're actually afraid of ourselves. So as we start to work very directly with fear by creating it in a dream, literally creating a a mindscape, creating an environment in the dream that is is fear-inducing, and then establishing a sane and healthy relationship to that fear, that's monumental. And even though it may seem somewhat contrived at this level, you actually are starting to work with this fundamental ground of confused existence, which hurls us into, into involuntary form, you know, moment-to-moment, day-to-day, life-to-life. Um, and then from there, depending on where you want to go with this, there are other stages that are more refined that we can talk about. But the fundamental idea is if, if you can gain control over the contents of your own mind then basically you are no longer um, at the um, the whims of your experience. You know, the vicissitudes of your experience, are, the tables are switched. Instead of being blown around by um, emotional difficulties in your life or challenges, you know, because you've worked with your mind in this very intimate way, you start to realize that you can transpose those insights into the waking world. And that's no small thing. 
Now, you've said a lot of big things, Andrew. So there's a there's one particularly I want to make sure to tease out, which is you said you discover through dream yoga that there's no difference between waking reality and sleeping reality. Now, does that mean you can make five hands appear in front of you? Or am I, should I ask Me? you to... Or, I mean, if you can do this in the dream state, Cities. but doing it in the waking state, I mean... I need to understand more because I don't think most people. Yeah, would this say, is a big leap. Exactly, yeah. it's a big leap. Yeah, and in the uh, in the spiritual traditions, and in particular Buddhism, which is where you know there are many traditions, as you know, that work with dreams. Um, but the only one that that I'm aware of that works with dreams and has a yoga to the extent that that I'm uh, have practiced it is really the Tibetan tradition. And within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Um, they assert repeatedly that there's no fundamental difference between the nature of waking experience and the nature of sleeping experience. Um, it's just a difference in degree. So um, to you know direct, directly relate or refer to your question, yes, it is actually said that those who gain complete mastery over the dream state, for instance, the Buddha himself, you know, the great historical Buddha, 2,600 years ago he actually literally never fell asleep. I mean, those who are truly awakened, it's, it's more than just a, a metaphor. Their bodies may lie in repose, but the mind of a Buddha never falls asleep. They maintain a 24-7 type of constant consciousness or constant awareness. They never lose the ability to maintain awareness. And what the historical Buddha did, you may know, is that in the evening when his body was in repose, he was able to emanate it's called a special dream body. And again, I know this may seem wildly esoteric to people, but it's in the tradition. And His Holiness the Dalai Lama also speaks about this. And he was able to you know, send his uh, special dream body, which is not dissimilar from what perhaps we might know in more colloquial terms in the West with astral projection. I can't speak with total authority about that. But a very subtle mind, prana, a body-mind made of prana, can be um, actually... Um, differentiated from the body and sent to different locations. But the tradition is very clear that this particular power, what we know as Siddhi, psychic power, S-I-D-D-H-I, relative Siddhi is the ability to work and manipulate this so-called external world. But one of the great fruitions of dream yoga, and this is actually not that hard, even from a waking state now, to examine. If you look... From, the, from your perspective of waking consciousness, if you look back onto your dream, you may initially have the sensation that there's a subject in the dream, you, that there's an object in the dream, the dream content, and that there's some active perception taking place between those two poles. But it doesn't take much reflection to look and realize, you know, that's not the case. That's not what's happening there. In the contents of a dream, in the context of a dream, there is no subject, there is no object. There's just the dream content arising and being aware of itself. This is what the Buddhist tradition talks about as mind only. You know, there's, there's really, it's just the display of the mind. So if this insight can be brought to utter stability and fruition, then a dream yoga or even further a sleep yoga practitioner, you know, maintaining awareness through deep dreamless sleep, they arise into this so-called waking reality. They realize it's simply mind only taking on this particular display. And they then have 
the same type of power over this world that they do over the mental world and the dreamscape. And the tradition has many, many stories of great siddhas, great masters, who through the power, the proficiency of their dream yoga, were able to manipulate. So okay. I may not be able to do it. Right. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit, though, about your experience, because you know here I was, and, and I was completely tracking with you in terms of being in the dream state and being able to fly, for example, mm-hmm. and being able to fly faster and farther and cool, I can do it. I would not try that right now right. when I want to get home tonight not from work. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to like jump off the building and see if it works. I'm not going to do it. And so for me, there's a huge gap between what I might be able to explore in the dream state yes. and what I would try to explore here. And so... I'm curious just to, to help us mere mortals, not what they say in the tradition, but help exactly. us mere mortals make well, sense y- of this. Yes, exactly. And what I would do is, as you know, Tammy, that these these psychic powers, as they're called, the relative city, they're all, they're inconsequential in the true spiritual scheme of things. They're, in fact, they're somewhat dangerous because they can be distractions. They can just be detours. So a much more important way, and this is where I would like to take the conversation, okay. because it's very easy to spin off... And even dismiss um, dream yoga as just this wildly esoteric thing. Um, what I want to try to drive home, and I do this with the program, is that it's intensely practical. It's a way to work with mind and heart and everyday experience. So a, a, a wonderful kind of aphorism or jingle that I um, received from my teacher, Kempo Rinpoche, that's a, a wonderful relationship between relative city and absolute city. When uh, Kempo Rinpoche once told me, he said, relative power, relative city, is when you have power over the world. And that's what we were talking about. You know, you can fly, you can walk through walls. Um, it's entertaining, but it's really not that important. What's much more important, and this is what people can take home, is absolute city. And absolute city or absolute power is when the world no longer has power over you. So it's not you having power over the world. It's the world no longer has power over you. That's very practical, and that's something that can be worked with immediately. And I was alluding to it earlier. So that when you, again, you develop this sense of um, the world being dreamlike, you know, the reason the world has so much power over us right now is because we make it so solid. We are the ones, we are not victims of reality. We are victims of our own projections and attitude towards a reality that we actually create. I mean, we don't create it in a solipsistic sense. You know, we know it's not just my mind out here, but it's our, you know, this deep psychological and spiritual ability that we have to constantly color the world in our image. You know, this idea of King Midas, you know, we are the King Midas of our world. Everything we touch with our senses transforms into our version of gold. So we don't see the way the world it is. We see the way the world we is. Or, we see it the way or we are. Or probably for a lot of people, a lot of time, it's not King Midas, but it, unfortunately, it's like King shit. Exactly. Just to be exactly. blunt about it. You exactly. know, our pain is what we see everywhere. Yeah, so this is what this, is what th- this particular practice allows you to see in exquisitely intimate detail because you start to see clothed in the kind of... Um, delight of the dream, how it is that you, you know, in the dreamscape, you literally create your reality and you work with those insights. You wake up into this so-called external waking reality 
and you start to bring those insights with you. You start to see how it is that you paint the world in your image. And then by doing that, the world no longer has this kind of power. The world no longer is so solid, lasting, and independent. And this is one of the great ironies of the spiritual path as I've come to understand it. And it was really put um, into my heart through the practice of dream yoga. And that is that when we wake up in, in, on spiritual path, which of course is what the word Buddha, the Buddha is the awakened one. Well, I always asked myself for many years, what did he awaken from and what did he awaken to? Well, he, awoke, he woke up from a world that is solid, lasting, and independent. In other words, he woke up from a dualistic world, a reified world of self and other, and he woke up to a world that was illusory, to a world that was dreamlike. And that is the source of tremendous liberation. If you can wake up to a world that is dreamlike, and there's some issues here that would be, I think, helpful to talk about some of the near enemies to that, you know, like nihilism and things. It's very easy to spin off and get lost in that. But if we can wake up to a world that in, in essence, and this is the way the awakened ones see the world, the world is fluid and rainbow-like and infused with emptiness, infused with light. If you can wake up to a world like that, and of course, a natural consequence, that's a non-dual experience, then that world no longer has power over you. You are no longer the victim of the world. And that's really the fundamental source of freedom. So what the dream yoga practices do, it's just another way to bring the entire spiritual path into a practice medium that we normally have no relationship to. So in a certain sense, there's not that much new going on here. It's just a way to explore heart and mind, stability, kindness, and compassion in the medium of the night, in an expression where most of us just kind of check out. So instead of blacking out, we can wake up. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. And now let's circle back around to the beginning of our conversation. Let's say somebody is listening, and they have not successfully ever had lucidity in a dream. It's never happened. Maybe they've heard a little bit about it, they tried a little bit, didn't happen, and they gave up because it seemed too hard. How can you help them with this very first step, yeah. which is to begin lucid dreaming? Right. No, that's really great. Well, you know, first and foremost is the, the view behind the practice. The view is, is of paramount importance because um, even if someone never has a single lucid dream, just the fundamental insights, just the view of the dream yoga path altogether can be profoundly insightful. So even if you've never had one, just realizing that even at the level of the map, even at the level of um, spiritual theory, realizing that this world fundamentally is illusory, this world is not what we think it is, 
um, the, the basic tenets of dream yoga can be of profound benefit in changing your relationship to that world. Now, in um, in terms of like how can a practitioner cultivate... I want to have a lucid want, exactly. dream tonight. Perfect, yes. Tonight. So there are a number of things you can do. Um, in fact, you just did the most important one, and that is intention, intention, intention. So if you go into the dream, and during the course of the day, this is one of the best ways to prepare for dream yoga, is throughout the day you're, you're really constantly driving home this intention. I mean, re- not just flapping your lips, but really meaning it. You know, tonight I'm going to have many dreams. Tonight I'm going to have good dreams. I'm going to have clear dreams. I'm going to wake up in my dream. Um, what you're doing is you're actually seeding the dream. I mean, most of the dreams that we have at night anyway are seeded by the experiences we have during the day. I mean, the unconscious mind is just being revealed to us. So if you if you stuff the ballot box, so to speak, if you start to drive the intention that I want to have these dreams, you're you're starting to project that awakened quality. And you're, you're working with one of the fundamental laws of um, habitual pattern or... Um, in this context, karma. In, in particular, this law of karma is called the law of proximate karma, which is where the last thought you have on your mind at any moment of transition is often the first thought that will take birth in the next moment of transition. That's just the way the mind works. So the first thing you can do is have this constant intention. You know, tonight's the night, and especially when you're lying in bed, you're going to sleep, you're lying down, and you're ramping it up. Tonight's the night. I'm going to wake up in my dreams. I'm going to have my lucid dream. Um, that's extremely helpful to do. You can uh, assume a particular posture uh, according to the, the, the inner yoga traditions. Um, the uh, outer body is just the expression of a more subtle body. And you can assume a position. It's called the, the sleeping lying position. It's the way the Buddha died. You lie down on your right side. And that's... Perhaps beyond the scope of what we want to explore here in terms of like the anatomy and physiology of the subtle body, but it's highly conducive to closing off certain subtle aspects of our body that are designed to, um, you know, kind of block awakening within um, sleep and dream and opening up channels or parts of the body that are conducive to it. So you can lie down on your right side. That will certainly help. And then as you're going to sleep, you know, you can kind of do a a visualization. It's a very easy visualization <clears throat> where you bring your... This is conjoining the technology of the East and the West. So this, again, would be more inner yoga practice. So this is more Eastern approach. You bring your awareness to your throat. Um, you visualize a red, either a red pearl or a red four-petal lotus. And as you maintain your awareness there, lying down on your right side, you continue kind of to reinforce this momentum, this heartfelt desire that tonight I want to wake up in my dreams. And then two other things, very, very helpful. Um, prime time, dream time is two hours before you would normally wake up. That's when most of your dream, the dream cycles um, switch from mostly um, deeper states of dream, which, I mean, deeper states of sleep, which are non-dream, to dream states. So this is why we tend to remember our dreams the later we go. So primetime dream time starts about two hours before you wake up. So the idea here is you set your alarm to go off two hours before you normally wake up. And studies have shown, um, and certainly my experience bears it out, 
that there's a 2,000% increase in the likelihood of having a lucid dream just by doing that. Um, so when I do my dream yoga practices, unless I'm in re- strict retreat where I wake myself constantly through the night and I take naps throughout the day, I can't do that during the week. So what I do is I set my alarm two hours before I normally get up. I go to the bathroom. I splash some water on my face. I stay up for 15 minutes. And then I go back to sleep. That's a very, very opportune time to work with these subtle states of transition between waking and dreaming, um, it's very easy to start to play with the dream state. And then one final thing that's extremely helpful is you take an herbal supplement called galantamine. This is a substance you can order. <clears throat> I get it in the form of what's called galantamine, and you take four to 800 milligrams. In its kind of prescription strength, this is a medication that's used for memory enhancement and all things like Alzheimer's. And what it does is it inhibits the breakdown of a particular neurotransmitter that's very high in um, activity during the dream state. So it helps you maintain longer, clearer, and sharper dreams. And the first time I started playing with this, I was delightfully surprised how powerful it was. So um, wake up two hours before you normally wake up, get the galantamine, take four to um, to eight milligrams, and then go back to sleep using some of these uh, kind of motivations to wake up. And usually when I do my programs and the programs I've attended um, with other um, lucid dream instructors, within the course of two to three weeks, almost everybody that I've been aware with will have at least one lucid dream. The only part I'm not clear on in terms of how I'm going to use this in my life is the visualization part. So I'm visualizing a red pearl or a four-petaled flower at the throat. What am I doing with this visualization and why? And why, yeah. Well, this is, again, this is the blend. This is where we we go into the inner yoga world again. Um, So we can step into that for a little while because I know for one you have an interest in it. According to the inner yoga teachings, and as we know, this is a, a large part of many spiritual traditions, working with a the channels, the chi, the meridians, many different traditions talk about it. According to the workings of the mind in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, um, what actually dictates our level of consciousness, what, where, um, how it is that we perceive our world, from a subtle body point of view, that is dictated by where what are called the mind pearls, the mind essences, they're called bindu, um, or tigle in Tibetan, where these mind pearls accrete. So during the day, like right now, hopefully we're awake seemingly, those mind pearls, those bindus, are uh, collected in the head chakra. They're right now in the center of our heads. And the winds are therefore associated with that too, by the way, which parenthetically, when we go to sleep at night, what we're doing is we're unwinding, we're unwinding. We're taking the wind from the top of our head which is waking consciousness. And when we fall into deep dreamless sleep or um, very, very deep meditation or death, these mind essences collect at the level of the heart. And the tradition is replete with stories of heat around the heart center with people who have died that are still in meditative absorption and whatnot. So when we're in waking consciousness, the winds and the mind drops are at the top of the head. In deep dreamless sleep, they gather at the heart. And in dream, they gather at the throat. 
Um, so what a very skilled dream yoga practitioner can do, they can bring about what Stephen LaBerge, who's really the kind of the dean of academic lucid dreaming in the West, he refers to this particular practice and uh, using the acronym um, WILD, waking-induced lucid dreaming, and it really is wild. And what can what someone can do in a waking-induced lucid dream is they can literally go from waking consciousness to dreaming consciousness within the matter of a minute or two, or, or very proficient practitioners can actually go there within a few seconds even. It's through the power of directing their uh, mind essences towards the throat. So again, this is a little bit esoteric, but where the mind gathers its attention, where where the mind goes, the subtle winds go. Where the subtle winds go, the pranas go. I mean, the bindus go. And where the bindus go, consciousness goes. So right now, um, we're kind of moved around by the natural movements of the day, the natural movements of sleeping and, and dreaming and waking consciousness. By working with the inner yoga systems, either in inner yoga proper or through dream yoga, which is kind of a subset of the inner yogas in this regard, one can become so proficient that they can drop from waking consciousness into dreaming consciousness within the matter of a few minutes. And that's what's referred to as waking-induced lucid dreaming. So this is just another way, and this is what I, I try to present, is just all these different skillful means, some of which may work for some people, some of which may be um, inapplicable to certain people. It's not like you have to do every single one. What I try to do is present as many different methods as I can from both the East and the West so that people can explore. They become their own meditation instructor in the dream state. They try these out. What is it that works for you? What doesn't work for you? It doesn't mean you have to be exhaustive in these techniques. So if visualizing something in your throat doesn't seem to work for you, just forget about it. If getting up two hours before and taking galantamine works, that's your way in. So the trick is not so much getting caught up with what it is that takes us into the dream, lucid dream state, but basically just how do we get in? And by having all these different options, um, more often than not, something will work for you. Something will be your gateway in. And then that's what you stick to. You don't have to do the other ones. Um, so Stephen LaBerge and his books and um, Tenzin Wangyal and others, Alan Wallace and their books, they talk about wonderful different ways, different means, different strokes for different folks that can get you in. And I try to present as many as possible so that people can explore and then see what works for them. Okay, Andrew, how did you become the Tibetan dream yoga guy? I mean, <laughs> what's your story behind this? Well, it goes back quite a way, Tammy. It goes back to my early 20s um, with a, a really transformative life experience for me that launched the whole thing for me. And then I'll tell you how I eventually stumbled into the Tibetan thing. But I, I took a year off of college, I think I was about 23, to kind of sort out my life and see what I wanted to do. And I, I worked in a hospital as a surgical orderly and... This was, you know, quite a while ago when there wasn't that much going on in, in the, the meditative or spiritual arena in the Western world yet. Um, but I started reading all the literature that was available in the developing New Age. You know, Edgar Cayce, the Seth material. My, my spiritual path started in the New Age. And um, I started having a, a number of very interesting dreams, dreams that seemed to anticipate or portend something. And... I think it was about eight months after this, you know, in the middle of this kind of sabbatical year, 
um, I just stumbled into this altered state of consciousness. And I'm, I'm very reluctant to say too much about it because I think it's um, a little bit tricky to share too much about spiritual experiences. Um, spiritual experiences really, they mostly arise in the sanctuary of silence, and I believe they should be maintained with the integrity of silence. But because this happened so long ago, and I think it happens to a lot of people, I can share a little bit about it. Um, fundamentally, what happened was for about a period of a week or two, I just stumbled into this altered state of consciousness where I was having um, incredibly powerful dreams every night, spontaneous lucid dreams. I knew nothing about dream yoga at this point. Um, and I kept a, a really a, a, what became a large um, dream diary next to my bed, recording all these dreams. And, and I also noticed that what started happening was this, was this kind of bleed through where not only were my dreams during the night becoming more pronounced, lasting longer, more clear, but as I woke up during the day, my, dr my day experience became more fluid, more illusory, more metaphorical, more dreamlike. Um, and about a week into the experience, it was quite profound. I, I started having a hard time telling whether I was awake or asleep or not. It was like these worlds really were bleeding into each other. And then I started to really get afraid. I started to freak out because I was losing my sense of stability, my, my sense of reality. I, hard, I had a hard time determining, like, what's real anymore? You know, am I dreaming right now? I mean, really, ask yourself sometimes, am I awake right now? How do you really know? So in my young 20s, um, I started to panic a little bit. You know, it's like, I, I'm not sure I can control this experience anymore. So I shut it down. And... As best I could, I tried to keep it um, repressed. But how, how did you do that? How did you? you know, did you I, eat a lot of hamburgers well, at night very, or something? Very or? close. Yeah, I was living in Michigan, so I got in my VW bug, and I drove out here to Colorado to ski. And I got you know hung out with all my ski buddies, and I drank a lot, and I did all the things a crazy twenty-year-old would do. And I, I successfully kind of snuffed it for a little while. But something had fundamentally changed for me. You know, it was a, it was a kind of a transmission. I, I had seen the world in a different way, and trust me. This was not a particularly um, utterly legit, legitimate awakening experience, but there was a, it was a tectonic shift in my worldview. Something had fundamentally changed, and it challenged the status of my world. You know, it really made me question, what is it that's real? What is it that's actually real in this world? So that really triggered my spiritual quest in a very real way. I wanted to understand what happened to me. And I systematically started reading um, about the world's traditions, and really by process of elimination, one day I started reading about Buddhism. And lo and behold, when when I um, discovered what the word Buddha meant, you know, the awakened one, immediately I was attracted. Well, this is this is very interesting to me. You know, what does it mean? So that launched me into my um, burgeoning career as a student of the of the Buddha, because I wanted to understand what it meant to wake up. Um, and then through that study, eventually I became interested in Tibetan Buddhism. And as I alluded to earlier in this interview, um, an integral part of uh, Tibetan Buddhist practice in the six yogas of Naropa is dream yoga and illusory form. Those are kind of reciprocating daytime and nighttime practices. And then when I went into really, really long retreat, I had the extraordinary luxury to practice both illusory form and dream yoga um, to quite an extensive degree. And it allowed me to step back into that world that I experienced as a 20-year-old, but now with a, tr a complete sense of understanding and a sense of, okay, I can work with this. You know, I don't have to let it freak me out. I can use this 
dissolution of my traditional worldly framework as a way to really start to expand my horizons and see the world in a different way. Now, can you help me understand more what the illusory form daytime practice is that goes along with the dream yoga practice? No, that's really great because it's another way to talk about how to trigger lucid dreams. And this is another differentiating factor between lucid dreaming and dream yoga altogether because lucid dreaming does not have this daytime component. Dream yoga, the daytime component of dream yoga is illusory form. And it's, a, it's referred to, you may know this Tibetan word as a nindro. It's the preliminary practice to dream yoga. And it's, it's really the same. They're called reciprocating practices because it's basically the same practice applied to do two different states of consciousness. So what one does in illusory form practice, it's almost patronizingly simple. Um, the fundamental teaching with at least the first, there are three or four different levels of illusory form, some of which are quite refined. But the most um, uh, accessible form of illusory practice, illusory form practice, is continually reminding yourself as often as you possibly can, you know, this is a dream. Or even, even more importantly, challenging the status of this reality, saying, is this a dream? Is this a dream? So what you're doing is you're it's using the, the inherent power of the mind to project. We're always projecting anyway. We're always projecting out to the world in ways that make us suffer. But here what we're doing is we're projecting or imputing onto reality a view of reality that's actually a template of the way reality is. In other words, what I mean by that, and I, I mentioned this earlier, that if you see the world through the eyes of the awakened ones, through the eyes of the clear light mind of the Buddhas, the world appears to be an illusion, maya. It appears to be like a dream. So when you engage in a loose reform practice, it's a fake it till you make a practice. You're actually, you're, you're, throughout the course of the day, as often as you can, it's a form of mindfulness practice, really. Throughout the course of the day, you say to yourself as often as you possibly can, this is a dream. I really am dreaming. This is a dream. And it may seem like you know, utter silliness, but you're, again, you're creating... But, so I say in this moment, this is a dream, but then I pinch myself, and I think that hurts. <laughs> so how do I, how do I work with that? I well, mean, but am then, I like but then, saying an affirmation? This but is you know, it's very interesting. If you, if you wake up, and I, I did a series of experiments in my own um, dream yoga around this, because I wanted to explore some of these things. Yeah. I wanted to see, what, can I experience pain in a dream? So in a dream, I conjured up a rose bush, and I put my dream thumb into the dream thorn, and it hurt. So what's the difference? You know, I mean, so what you would do to return to your issue, so you say to yourself, this is a dream, you pinch yourself, it hurts. Then the invitation here is explore the nature of that pain. Go into that pain. You know, what is the nature of that pain? What is it that makes it real? What is it that makes me suffer? You're not negating, and this is what I mentioned earlier is one of the, um, or started to allude to earlier, is one of the near enemies of seeing the world as illusory. One of the near enemies of seeing the world as a dream is, is nihilism. Oh, it's all a dream. It doesn't matter what I do. And that's not going to get you very far. So you always have to acknowledge, you know, kind of the relative truth component here. But what you're doing is you're challenging the status of that relative appearance, with these things. So here, um, in relation to the dream, you pinch yourself, you say, you know, I'm dreaming, am I dreaming right now? You pinch yourself, you feel you feel pain. The invitation here is then go directly into that pain. 
what is that pain made of? How, uh, how real is that pain? How and why does that pain have to hurt me? Who is it hurting? And what it does is it tends to interrupt or frustrate intentional frustration of a habitual pattern we have that always tortures us. So it's a way to break these um, less-than-skillful habits that really cause us so much anguish in this life. Now, you mentioned this topic of the near enemies, and nihilism clearly is one. It seems to me, though, also sort of being super spacey, like, oh, you know, everything's a dream, or not taking responsibility for things. It seems like there are a lot of near enemies for being, quote-unquote, dreaming all the time. Yes, there are. You know, spiritual bypassing is one. You know, you can just say to yourself, well, it's all just a dream, so why bother? Why bother paying the bills? You know, why bother paying attention to so-called relative reality? So then what one has to do is, as I just started to suggest earlier, you always have to understand the relationship between relative and absolute truth. So when we're working with the dream yoga, and in particular even deeper sleep yoga, we're working with um, more absolute truth level. You know, we're talking about things like um, emptiness, you know, really the, the foundation tenets of all spiritual practice and all awakened reality. So the idea is to take the view provided by these lofty tenants, and then um, kind of ground them in human experience. You know, so you don't, uh, if you take not just dream yoga, but any spiritual practice, and you use it as a way to default responsibilities for conditioned life, then then it really is It's just a form of escapism. You're just wanting to run away. Um, you're not really waking up. You're basically running away. So one always has to, and this is why the the view behind these practices is so important because you have to understand that, yes, the world is illusory in this regard, but there is a relative reality that allows us to operate and connect to other human beings. We always have to pay homage to that without buying into it. And that's the difference. So you still have, you know, a Buddha, awakened one, still has complete um, access and um, relationship to the so-called conditioned world. In fact, they see it much more clearly and accurately than we do, but they don't buy into it. You know, they're no longer seduced by worldly, um, solid realities. You know, they're, they're liberated from them. So there's this really skillful dance between relative and absolute that has to take place here, as it does really with so many aspects of the spiritual path altogether. You know, if you don't balance the lofty view of, of the sky with the fine grain of your daily experience you're just basically running away from reality instead of trying to discover it. So do you practice dream yoga every night, only some nights, uh, <laughs> when you don't have a big work day or it doesn't matter? Yeah, yeah. you know, a little bit of both. You know, um, I often talk about somewhat tongue-in-cheek that one of the great aspects of this gift, again, it's, it's or, uh, dream yoga, one of the great gifts of dream yoga, and it's also, again, why it's a truth-teller, is that anybody who's engaged in lucid dreaming practice for more than a year or two will discover that it really will expose your passion for ignorance. Um, Because ignorance is just a... a, a Sleep is just a code word for ignorance. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, you'll be doing these practices, you know, you kind of get excited, you want to do them, you take the posture, you're doing the breathing thing, and you're doing this for maybe, you know, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour. And at a certain point... You know, if you're leaning it into these practices too hard, for one thing, you'll never fall asleep. So you have to kind of, you know, release the practice at a certain point. 
But there definitely will come a point where every dream yoga practitioner will just say, screw it, I'd rather be stupid. And that's totally okay. So in my experience, what I do is on weekends when I have time to sleep in, I lean into my practice more. I'm more willing to you know, be a little groggy in the morning. Um, during the week when I have to you know, get up early and go to work, I may do some gentle in- induction techniques just to kind of maintain the momentum. But I don't invest in them very much. Because if you don't enjoy the practice, you're not going to do it. If you tie yourself in the knots trying to do it, it's no fun. So you have to become your own meditation instructor with these practices. You have to see what works for you, not too tight, not too loose. Um, and then when I go on my retreats, then, yeah, I lean into it big time. You know, I, do, I set my alarm to go off every 90 minutes to work with the natural rhythms of the sleep cycles. I take multiple naps during the day. Um, that's pretty tough to do during the course of a work week. But, you know, these practices really came about as a way to allow one to use any aspect of experience as a, um, a mechanism or a spiritual path. So for some people, you know, some people actually have kind of a talent for dream yoga. It has to do with the way their channels are configured. Some people are really gifted. Just because you're having a lot of lucid dreams doesn't necessarily mean you're more realized spiritually. It could simply mean that your software, so to speak, is configured for this type of lucidity. Um, But certain people have a a natural disposition to it. I seem to be one of them, but there are many others that do, and there are a ton of other people that don't. So for me, dream yoga provides a wonderful way to work with the night. It works for me. For other people, it doesn't, and that's completely fine. It's It's just another menu. It's just another item on the menu it says, you know, I, let me try it. Let's see if it works for me. If it works for me, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama always says, if it works for you, take it to heart. If it doesn't, throw it out the window. Just two final questions for you, Andrew. Here's the first one. I'm curious in your own dream laboratory, what's the term you used for the inner astronaut oh, of the dream O'Nironauts. space? Yeah, the uh, Mr. Andrew O'Nironaut. <laughs> What is your current area of dream exploration? What are you working on? Oh, yeah, what fun. Um, I tend to go through, I tend to um, recapitulate a lot of the different stages to maintain kind of stability in them. So I go through some of the other things that we were talking about. You know, I work with walking through walls. I almost always, when I wake up into a dream, I almost always start on a joyful note. You know, which is like, I, I'm going to go flying. You know, I'm just going to do it. So it's, there's intention evolved. doesn't create negative karma to fly around. You know, I'm just having a good time. And then I'll work through. I, I do a little bit of a cascade of repeating through some of these practices. So I'll usually fly for a little bit. Um, then I'll do the multiplication thing. I'll change, you know, one thing into many or many things into one. I'll change, uh, you know, a car into a tree. I'll do that. And I can do that with some rapidity. And then what I'll tend to do is I'll, I'll work with more, um, with deeper issues. You know, in particular now for me, what I try to do is I'm trying to work, and this is a, maybe a segue into the, the deeper phases of dream yoga practice altogether, which is working with sleep yoga. So what I do now, what I try to do is I try to develop a sense of awareness in deep dreamless sleep. And one of the best ways to do that, and it's a, such an interesting thing to do, is that the next time you wake up in a lucid dream... Um, close your dream eyes and see where it takes you. Close your dream eyes. And what that can do is it can invite you back into lucidity 
not only in the dream, but in deep dreamless sleep. And that's a, a marvelous dimension of complete freedom. So I, I work with gaining some facility and stability in that. Um, and then if that doesn't work, I'll come back up and I will work with, um, there's a particular practice. This ties into the, the writing and the um, teaching I do on death. There's a particular form of practice where, where one can actually, I alluded to it earlier, can create a special dream body. It's, it's not as hard as you think, really. And the special dream body can then be um, transported, you know, either into different um, aspects of this so-called physical earth or even different dimensions. It sounds wildly esoteric, but with a little bit of stability, it's not that difficult to do. Um, and again, His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about it. It's in the tradition. Um, and then really, fundamentally, very often, I will just try to maintain meditative stability in the dream. So I, I try to meditate in the dream, which is not so simple. You, you would think that it would be. So I wake up in the dream, and I'll just try to stabilize my mind and actually just meditate within the dream. You know, just kind of hold my mind. It's, it's, it's quite similar to the type of meditation I do during my waking consciousness. Um, so I will kind of take some of the practices I'm doing during the day, and then I just bring them into the night. And I find in my own experience that it strengthens my daily practice because I'm working with my mind in a much more intimate environment. And teachers like Namkai Nobu Rinpoche and others have said, and this applies also to the after-death states, that if, if a practitioner can meditate in the dream state, it's seven to nine times more powerful than what one can do during the waking state. Um, so that, to me, is the frontier that I'm trying to work with now. And now just one final question. As you know, Sounds True puts on an annual wake-up festival. Yeah, it's wonderful. And this term, waking up, I think means different things to different people. And I'm curious what it means to you, waking up. Yeah, boy, isn't that the $60,000 question? Well, I think there's a number of ways to define that. You know, for me, it's waking up from the nightmare of ego, you know, waking up from this nightmare of solidification. Um, that's what it means for me. And, and this is where uh, the dreaming of practice ties in so beautifully to illusory form. It's the one thing I didn't say that I do want to say is that with illusory form practice, it's like you're developing x-ray eyes. So this is what, this is what waking up means to me. Um, X-ray eyes, the eyes of the superior man or woman, as it says in the Taoist tradition, the superman, the superwoman, that kind of X-ray vision, literally in Buddhism it's referred to as the path of seeing. It's the quality of the mind-heart that can see through the facade of solidity. So as, as you know, wildly esoteric as some of this material may be, and that's one of the dangers in this type of practice because it can, it can seem so otherworldly, so out there. But the fundamental teaching behind it is one that the Buddha himself, um, really his foundation teaching when he said, you know, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So for me, what waking up means is taking this ability to see through the facade of solidity, the facade of this sense of self, the facade of the sense of other, cutting through that with the superior vision of these awakened eyes, which really the spiritual path is all about, and then resting in the non-duality that is actually seen. Um, 
So it's penetrating through the illusion of form, the illusion of other, and then all the other things, you know, as it says in the, um, I believe it's in the Upanishads, you know, where there is other, there is fear. So if you can cut through the illusion, cut through the facade of other, then you break through fear and you wake up to a, a reality that is fundamentally compassionate, loving, and uh, suffused with love. So a long-winded answer, but I think that's what it means to me. Beautiful. I've been speaking with Andrew Holacek with Sounds True. He has created a new six-session audio learning course on dream yoga, the Tibetan path of awakening through lucid dreaming. Andrew, thank you so much. Thanks, Tammy. It's been a thrill. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.